Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. This episode is brought to you by Element Electrolytes. This month, we are switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP Element partners, including CarnivoreCast listeners. You can now receive a free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link at drinkelementtcom slash CarnivoreCast. I'll provide it in the show notes as well. The Element sample pack includes one packet of every flavor. This is the perfect offer for anyone who's interested in trying all the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash carnworkcast to get this special offer and claim the deal. Element electrolytes are convenient, evidence-based, and delicious. They're used by Navy SEAL teams, Olympic weightlifters, jujitsu athletes, and everyday people who want to make themselves better like you and me. Kate Cavanaugh at Kate underscore Cavanaugh on Instagram is a regenerative farmer, nutrition therapist, and butcher. She's seen firsthand the way that soil health mirrors human health and the impacts on animal-based diet can have on ecosystem and human health alike. In conjunction with that, Kate built a farm finder where people can find regeneratively raised meat near their home. She also recently launched a podcast called The Groundwork Podcast, exploring the interconnected themes of mind, body, and soil. Welcome to the show, Kate. Scott, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to chat with you um, and glad we were able to make this work. Um, Tell me how you got to where you are now. Like, how did you become this regenerative farmer, uh, nutrition therapist, and butcher? (laughs) Seems like a really (laughs) awesome combination, and I'd love to hear how it evolved. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a winding journey. So all of this started with being a vegetarian, curiously enough. So in my in my early years as a child and throughout my teen years, and right up until about age 20, I, I was a passionate vegetarian. Uh, it started in childhood as a wanting to be sympathetic to animals. I was very little and very passionate about it. My parents went along with it and it sort of evolved as I got over older into concerns around the environment and factory farming and those impacts. But along, along the way, my health started to really deteriorate. And around age 20, I decided that I wanted to start eating meat. It just felt like something that was calling to me. It sounded really good to my body, but I knew that I wasn't going to eat just any meat. And so I went on this journey of learning how to source meat. And so I started visiting farms and ranches, talking to farmers and ranchers, and I found which at the time wasn't really being deemed regenerative agriculture. This was about 2010, but but really was regenerative agriculture. And I was really struck at meat's ability to heal landscapes. 
from the West and we have these sort of vast open prairies out West, or at least we used to. And one of the ideas along restoring native grasslands and that ecosystem is using ruminants with the gra- which the grasslands co-evolved with. And so I got really into this line of thinking. I started eating meat. I was feeling really great. And I, I love to dive into the deep end of the pool. And so for me, that was, okay, I'm eating meat and I'm learning all of these things about regenerative agriculture. I want to learn how to be a butcher so that I understand this in a 360 degree view. And so my husband, who's a master carpenter, and I went and we embarked on a journey to learn whole animal butchery. And we spent a year in apprenticeship breaking down thousands of animals. And then we opened up a butcher shop called Western Daughters in Denver in 2013. And it was just a whirlwind after that. And so my relationship with meat runs deep and it's very important to me. Um, and I can keep going. I mean, because then we get into nutrition therapy yeah, and the farm. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I'd yeah. Love to hear the whole whole thing. Yeah. So we opened up Western Daughters in 2013, and we're a whole animal butcher shop, and we specialize in 100% grass fed beef and lamb and pasture raised pork and chicken. Working directly with farms and ranches, breaking down everything in house, making our own sausage, making our own broths, rendering our own fats, and doing all of that. And along the way. I started to realize how many customers were coming in with health concerns of their own and looking to heal through meat. And once again, I was struck by the power of meat to heal both land and bodies. And so I decided that I wanted to learn more about that relationship and the intersection of it and went and studied to be a nutrition therapist just so I could learn as much as I could about nutrition and integrate that into my practice. And about two years ago, my husband and I decided to move off to our own farm and ranch. We still manage Western Daughters in Denver and to experiment with raising animals on our own. You know, we had this incredible opportunity as butchers to get to see animals from the inside out to get to see that life cycle and those raising practices and how they manifested in carcass composition, in the fat and in the color of the meat, the way that the meat felt and looked. And we really had some ideas. And so over the last two years, we've been playing a little bit on a very small scale with our own livestock raising. That's so cool. And um, I have to say, like, following your Instagram is so interesting seeing like the different things you're doing every day from like harvesting, um, the pigs to like how you think about different seasons and different activities. Um, why did you start decide to start documenting that, um, online? I think for me, there was this drive for people to get to see what it means to be connected to land and food. I have this idea that we've become really separated from nature and from our food system, especially in the last 100 years. But I think that this has been slowly taking place since the dawn of agriculture 10,000 years ago. And so to me, to give people a little peek into my world here on the farm, which is so intimately tied to the seasons or just to even what happens in a day and to get to see 
how I have translated the way that nature governs my own biology, right? Because we are we are a part and parcel of nature. And there's this myth that we're separate from it, but really everything from our circadian rhythm, which is governed by the light that we receive in our eyes, to you know, listening to birdsong, uh, it activates our parasympathetic nervous system and rest and digest, letting our bodies know that we're safe and getting to integrate into that space and raise and process all of my own meat. So we, we raise all of our own meat here on the farm. And to be that connected, it felt really important to me to just give everyone a sort of a peek inside that space so that maybe it would inspire them to reach out and connect to a farmer or a rancher near them or to just get outside and see how it changed the way that they felt. Yeah, that's awesome. I really like that mission. And um, for people, I, I guess this might be something we normally end on, but since you brought it up, I think it's an interesting topic. How can people, um, like everyday people listening to this podcast, get more involved with um, their food supply and um, understanding where their food comes from and all these um, kind of tropes we hear about, about being more connected to your food. Um, what are some of the biggest ways that you think people can, um, find that, find that connection? I think the first place to start is to just begin to notice the food that you're eating and where it comes from. And I think it's really important to start simply to just sort of ask yourself with curiosity and with no shame, where does the food that I'm eating come from? And what hands have touched it along the way? And I think as you become interested in that question, I would encourage everyone to seek out a local farm or ranch. You can't be very far from one. And to go and visit. Most farmers and ranchers love having people come and visit and interact with their food and to really get to see how this has grown. Because I think that there's this, there's this idea that all we see are hermetically sealed packages and this sterile idea of food in the aisles of the grocery store. And what we don't see is this connection that's happening between our food, right? And I think most of us here probably eat a carnivore or animal-based diet. So the connection between our, our meat animals and the land that they're grazing or interacting with. And I think getting a chance to see that and to meet someone who is growing your food, it just opens up this whole world. And so I would encourage everyone to go do that and just sit, watch, watch a cow graze and chew its cud and, and find a sense of curiosity and wonder in yourself. I know that every day that I go out and I interact with my animals, I learn something whether it's about me or about the ecosystem that I'm a part of or about these animals' incredible wisdom for their own bodies. And so go and seek out that experience. Yeah, that's that's really um, powerful. I think <clears throat> just as like a small um, aside to that, like I'm continuously amazed by how aware like my dog of her body and her surroundings. Yes. Um, and I'm sure you get all of that from all the different types of animals you interact with. So I can see um, like how cool and how elaborate that would be um, it's, in a farm it's setting. Inc it's incredible. And I think, you know, for us, we've had all of these social mores that have sort of bred out our own intuition with our bodies. But there's a man, I don't know if you followed the work of Fred Provenza. Are you familiar with him? No, I haven't. 
So Fred Provenza wrote this beautiful book called Nourishment, and he does research out of the University of Utah. And he was looking at just just how profoundly in touch with the needs of their bodies, sheep and goats are uh, within a system and how they will seek out specific nutrients, mostly minerals, that they need in perfection to the point where he recently did a study where he took two different pastures of sheep and he was looking to deprive one pasture of phosphorus. And the serum levels of phosphorus in the sheep's blood wouldn't drop. And they were like, where are they getting their this phosphorus? There's nothing available to them. Why isn't it dropping? Well, the sheep were reaching over the fence into a neighboring pasture and eating the droppings of sheep that were, that did have access to phosphorus. Wow. <laughs> and so there is just this innate knowledge of exactly what they need. And you can watch it happen in real time. And it just reminds me that that, that knowledge is in all of us. We just have to come home to it. Yeah, that's really great. And and just to give folks like a little more practical tips. Um, we talked about the sourcing. We talked about investigating where your food comes from and trying to get back in touch with animals. Um, how can people, you know, we're facing pretty serious inflation um, in the U.S. and I imagine probably in other countries as well. How can people deal with um, continuing to source really nutrient-rich food and meat um, on a budget during these times? I, I think that's such an important question. And I think it's a complex one because I think it depends on mainly the size of your freezer and what your your access is. But I have a couple of really big tips. I mean, first of all, I really believe that meat is the most nutrient-dense food that we can be eating. And to be entirely honest, I'm, I would much rather someone eat factory farmed beef than to go back to eating Lucky Charms or Cheerios, whatever that is. Yeah. And so I think that's important to remember, right? To not to not lose the plot of health in wanting it to be perfect or to be some utopian ideal. And this is something that I remind myself of too. Uh, the second thing is to shop the cheap cuts. And whether you're shopping with a butcher or you're shopping at the grocery store, there are always things that are going to be less expensive. Things like ground meat, things like organ meats, which is amazing because if you want to talk about nutrient density bang for your buck, organ meats are are right up there and they are often incredibly inexpensive. There is also just shopping for tougher cuts or roasts and braises. And so getting out of this mindset that the majority of the animal is going to be a strip steak or a ribeye or some of these named steaks that we're more familiar with when a London broil is going to be just as delicious. It's not just, it's not going to be as tender. And so sort of shifting the way that we eat in that regard, which I think is great because it not being tender means it's packed with so much more collagen. And so there are some nutritional benefits to that. The other thing I'd say is if you have the space for a freezer, buying a share of meat directly from a farmer or a rancher is one of the best ways to keep costs down. It is obviously going to be a bigger upfront cost, but once you've purchased the freezer and then you purchase whether it's an eighth share or a half share or a whole share of meat, then all of your meat is at home, which means that you're not driving to and fro to go get it. And gas is expensive too these days. 
and you're getting a flat rate price per pound that's going to be lower than what you would find in most places. And for people that don't have the capability to either fit that in their freezer or to front that upfront cost, I really recommend get a whole bunch of people and go in on a share of beef. You know, you can get 20 people and go in on a whole cow and that's going to bring everybody's cost down and you're still not going to have that upfront big balloon payment on your meat. A lot of people ask me about how to make liver more tasteful and how to cook it or incorporate other organ meats on carnivore. Optimal Carnivore can help you do just that with their grass-fed organ complex. It was created by carnivores for carnivores. They start by sourcing 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, gently freeze-drying the organs and encapsulating them into convenient bovine gelatin capsules. Just six of these capsules a day is the same as eating an ounce of raw organ meat. I personally take these every single day, as does my wife. Even though we both eat liver and other organ meats, our ancestors would have eaten the whole animal. And this unique blend has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, kidney, spleen, etc. And I think it's great to get a daily dose of these organs when you can. So it covers all your bases, whether you're at home or traveling. What's also cool is they plant a tree for every product sold, which helps the environment. So visit www.optimalcarnivore.com slash carnivorecast and use the code carnivore10 to receive 10% off your purchase. Thanks and back to the show. My wife and I, um, someone bought us for a wedding gift a couple of years ago, a quarter cow. Um, and it, it just, it seemed to keep going. <laughs> we bought <laughs> yeah. a chest freezer just to, to store it because it wouldn't fit in our freezer. And it was amazing how long it lasted. And yes, of course, you get a lot of ground beef, but like it's delicious and you still get a lot of other great cuts too. Absolutely. And ground beef, ground beef is one of my favorite things. I think it's a really underrated thing. And as a butcher, it's really important (laughs) for consumers to eat it um, from a, you know, that's most of your animal. When you cut up a a steer, you're going to have, depending on the way that you cut it, between 20 and 35% end up being ground beef, no matter what you do. And so you're really helping farmers and ranchers out by eating that. And I think that there are so many delicious iterations of ground beef. I I actually probably eat ground meat of some sort every single day. Um, Me too. And um, when you, when you were, or now um, with Western, Western daughters, have you ever had problems with like parts of the cow you can't sell? And what do you try to do with that or other animals? Hmm. You know, the point of being a whole animal butcher is to do your best to innovate ways to sell different cuts. And and again, this problem really does come up against the ground beef problem, which is, you know, if I have, if I go through four animals worth of cuts in a week, well, I have somewhere around 800 pounds of ground beef. And no matter what, I'm never going to have enough customers for that ground beef. And so I would actually say that ground beef is the hardest cut to move. And yeah. for the most I meant part, also like legally, were there parts of the animal that oh, um, like yes. you weren't allowed to sell? <laughs> yeah. 
So this is this is fascinating. And this comes out of the USDA. And so all of the rules, it's going to vary a little bit by state by state, but the USDA really dictates what you can and can't have of the animal. And so this includes things like lungs, sometimes depending on what state you're in, it's hard to get cheeks. Brains are notoriously difficult to get, uh, you know, tripe from grass-fed and your pasture-raised animals is near impossible to get. Uh, what else is there? Those are the main things. It's going to be some of these organ meats. Sometimes you can get spleen, but it is incredibly rare and, and rather difficult. And you also oftentimes, especially with beef, can't get feet. And so this has actually been something that's really fun about my husband and I process all of our own meat here on the farm because it's just for us. And so we've gotten a chance to take some of these things to harvest tripe, to have access to spleen and things like testicles even. And so there's just a lot more adventure to be had in, in this realm for us right now. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, we, we actually feed our dog um, tripe um, yeah. so, and she absolutely loves it. And yes, yeah, so good. we're able to get that. Yeah. And we leave ours green. So we just shake out, you know, yep. so tripe is going to be the rumen and we just shake out the contents of the rumen and leave whatever is stuck to that beautiful honeycomb structure and cut it up and feed it to our dogs as well. Yep. Yep. Uh, she loves it. And um, can you talk a, a little bit more about like um, as a regenerative farmer, how do you make sure that like I, I hear a lot about low PUFA pork and poultry um, and I never fully understood like what causes that and, and how, how does that compare to like conventional um, PUFA in, in those meats? Yeah. So when we're talking about PUFAs, we're talking about polyunsaturated fatty acids, uh, things like linoleic acid. And I think this is often really representative as our ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 fats. And ideally, we want about a one-to-one or one-to-two ratio. But here in the United States, at least, our ratio sits at about one-to-18, which is wild. And I think we generally associate polyunsaturated fatty acids as coming from things like seed oils, whether that's canola oil or rapeseed oil, whatever it is, those are going to be really high in polyunsaturated fatty acids. But there's this, there's this sort of sneaky source of, of PUFAs and linoleic acid that I think is worth considering. And that's when we feed animals, corn, soy, and sunflower, soy and sunflower being particularly higher in polyunsaturated fatty acids. And those are going to bioaccumulate in the fat of the animals that we're consuming. Now, even in a pasture-raised pork or poultry operation, the most common feed, so let me back up a little bit, Pigs and chickens, like us, only have one stomach. They're monogastric animals, and their digestive system works really similar to ours, especially in the case of pigs. And so they're omnivores and and very happy omnivores. And you'll see chickens love to get mice if they can catch them, and pigs will also eat meat if they can catch it. And so they have to have an extra source of feed. You are not going to find a 100% grass-fed chicken or a 100% grass-fed pig. And that feed is generally some mix of corn, soy, and sunflower. And so there's this idea that 
and and testing shows this, right? When we test for for omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids in the fat of these animals, we see really high amounts of linoleic acid. And so what my husband and I are experimenting with is feed that has no corn, no soy, no sunflowers, and feeding that to our pigs and chickens in addition to rotationally grazing them out on pasture where they have access to an abundance of forage. And we're currently, I currently have samples out for testing on our omega-3 to omega-6 ratios within this meat. And I just think it's something to consider. And I think that you really see this when you look at the graph of our meat consumption as we shifted away from red meat in the 1960s around when Ansel Keys put out his damning seven country study where he he cherry picked data. You see this real big shift into chicken and that chicken is being fed corn and soy. Uh, you also see the rise of seed oils in general. And so Again, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation, but I think that there is some concern that this is what we're feeding our animals. Yeah, that's fascinating. And can you talk, I guess, um, backing up a little bit, can you talk about how you manage regenerative farming and all the practices that go into a holistic animal system on your farm um, and how that might differ from other regenerative farming practices and yeah, just start wherever you want. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to remember. So my, my husband and I run a very small sort of experimental farm. That's mostly for us. We don't, we don't run a, a bigger operation like say Will Harris and white Oak pastures in Georgia. Um, but this idea of regenerative agriculture to me is really an idea of how do we farm in reciprocity with nature? and there's there's this idea we've kind of exited the idea of having a reciprocal relationship. Farming is extractive for the most part since especially since we've industrialized farming since Earl Butts who was the secretary of ag under Nixon said get big or get out. We've seen a massive decrease in the number of small independent family farms and with that a lot of the knowledge of how to work within the system of nature. And so my idea with regenerative farming is we want to mimic the way that animals would move in a, you know, as natural of a setting that we can imagine, right? I don't want to over-romanticize this, but it's really easy to think about this in terms of cattle. So originally on the plains, which would have comprised 40% of the United States, which is incredible. And it was this incredible ecosystem that actually was able to sequester more carbon than the rainforest because of the way that grasses put carbon back into the soil and they exchange that carbon inside the soil. This is a great example of reciprocity with microbes, bacteria, and mycorrhizal fungi in the soil for nutrients for the plants. And so they're exchanging carbon and in return, they're getting things like zinc and copper and iron, manganese. And then these animals are moving across the plains, which at the time were not fenced. And they were being pressured by predators into these sort of small herds. And they were stamping down all of this grass and pushing seeds into the grass. And their, their urine and their manure was adding nitrogen and fertilizer and more bacteria into the soil and sort of creating some positive stress in that space. And then they would be pushed off somewhere else and they would just go on a, a, onto other pastures. 
And so this is a really good example of reciprocity. And so plant species and animal species co-evolved together and they need one another. They need one another's inputs, especially when we look at something like ruminants and grasslands, which a lot of the world is comprised of grasslands that are not able to be cropped. But what they are able to do is to raise meat that is in turn nourishing those grasslands. And so that's kind of an example of this reciprocity that we're attempting to mimic when we dive into regenerative agriculture. And so what we do is we raise, we have a really small beef herd. We raise a whole bunch of goats and then we have two different kinds of pigs and all kinds of birds. So chickens, geese, ducks, you name it. And what we want to do is we want to create a space where our animals on this multi-species operation are giving, being given the option to sort of move around. And so we move them using different fencing to all of these different, very diverse areas with all kinds of different plant life. And again, this is coming back to Fred Provenza's idea that this is giving them a lot of different nutrients that are then getting getting encoded in their meat and their fat that we will eventually eat. And so they're giving back to the soil. The soil is giving back to the plants. Plants are giving back to the animals and the animals are giving back to us. And so there's this sort of cycle that's happening. And I think that's what's really at the heart of regenerative agriculture as I see it. But it means that you're spending a lot of time fencing and a lot of time moving animals, which is wonderful. I love it. Yeah, it seems like an extreme labor of love, <laughs> uh, but it's really cool to see people making it work like you. Yeah, well, we we love doing it, and and I think there's there's something special. You know, we go to the gym and we do these farmer carries, mm. and out here on the farm, you know, there are times when I'm hauling two five gallon buckets of stream water up out of out of this, you know, the ditch that the stream lives in to water the pigs in freezing cold weather. And it, it's it's such a beautiful connection that then on some summer day, I'm eating a pork chop and that work is a part of that pork chop. Yeah, that's really, really cool. And so how, how do you, I, I think you explained um, the environmental impact beautifully. Um, how do you think about the role of like death and something needing to die for um, us to have life and like how we can kind of explain that symbiosis to someone like a vegan or someone who thinks um, what you're doing is animal cruelty. Yeah. Scott, I love that question. I, I really enjoy talking about death and I think it's actually a really important topic to discuss because I think as we see this sort of rise in the vilification of meat in the media, and, and we've all seen it, I think what's happening in Ireland and New Zealand and now in, in Holland, where they are cutting emissions based on, on livestock. And, and there's just this sort of view that, that animal agriculture is bad, whether it's the emissions or the death that is contained in it. And I understand that. I, my relationship with death during the time that I was a vegetarian was I wanted to avoid it. I didn't want to want to be any part of it. But I think that there's this whole system that we don't see where death is inherent to any food system that we are participating in, 
whether we see it or not. And so in plant-based agriculture, maybe this looks like massive, you know, miles of monocropped peas and corn and soy that is displacing a bunch of wildlife. A lot of small mammalian death happens when tractors and combines harvest all of these crops. But there's also the death that occurs in the soil because it doesn't have any of those inputs that it needs to stay alive and is oftentimes being sprayed with things like glyphosate that act as an antibiotic, right? An anti-life and is destroying all of the bacterial and fungal and arthropod life inside of the soil. And that always brings me to this question of, you know, where is the hierarchy? Does that <laughs> where does that bacterial life rank or is it the mammalian life? But it's also death is a part of our food cycle. And I really believe that death is the point at which one transforms into many. And this is something that I've gotten a chance to really learn on the farm that when my goats are out and they're grazing on the soil and their manure is fertilizing this rich soil food web inside and underneath the ground, right? A universe beneath our feet. There's 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil, which just boggles my mind. And so they're out there and they're grazing and they have this relationship with the plants. And then when I go and I slaughter them and I process them, they're blood returns to the soil, adding nitrogen back into that. And all of the nutrients that were once a part of the plant matter and the soil become part of me when I eat that meat. And so there's this point at which life really lives on. And, and we see this in nature too, right? When, when a fox dies in the forest and begins to decompose its bones add nitrogen to the soil and coyotes feast on the carcass and and it becomes a part of all of these creatures and so there's this really interconnected web of life and i think in our avoidance and fear of death which in this culture we we sort of seal death away behind closed doors we don't really experience it we don't take time to grieve it and in that avoidance, I think we've made it something so fearful, so looming that we've lost this connection that death is what creates more life. It's what creates more fecundity, more aliveness. And I think it's important to try to come home to that idea. And I encourage, I encourage everyone, if you haven't, if you ever get the chance to come to an on-farm slaughter and to get a chance to to see that relationship. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And I think that's um, a fantastic note to end on. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I've learned a ton from you and I'm just excited to listen to your podcast and learn more. Um, where can folks find out more about you? And, and I'll share links in the show notes as well. Yeah, fantastic. So you can find me mostly on Instagram at Kate underscore Kavanaugh. And you can actually connect with a farmer or rancher near you with a platform that I built at nearhome.groundworkcollective.com. And it has all kinds of filters so that you can find low PUFA meat if you want. You can find grass-fed regenerative meat. And then 
westerndaughters.com if you're in Denver and you want to you wanna check out the butcher shop. And I'm sure there'll be more links in the bottom. Scott, thank you so much for having me. I really awesome. appreciate it. Thank you, Kate. It was my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out and share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at carnivorecast or go to carnivorecast.com. You can also email me at info at carnivorecast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.